things. If we are the democratic beacon, and I think it's problematic to say that, but let's suppose we are, then we have a duty to examine with absolute scrutiny, 100% all of the time, our institutions for signs of rot. Because the danger is if you think you live in a democratic society, you won't see the signs because you're too complacent. And I am afraid, I think that is where Britain is now. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Anna Lutfi, a legal researcher, commentator and human rights barrister who works with the Bad Law Project. Anna talks about two major campaigns, MP Andrew Bridgen's lawsuit against former Health Secretary Matt Hancock. Yes, there are disciplinary regimes in politics, and I accept that not every politician says exactly what they think all the time, but he was representing concerns that had been brought to him by people who elected him. An action on behalf of parents whose children are being encouraged to question their gender and identity at school. In the heart of Western so-called civilised societies, we are encouraging practices uh, that are harmful to young people. Um, we are targeting their genital areas and we are encouraging breast binding when, whilst condemning the uh, ancient Chinese practice of foot binding, which it's recognised as a misogynistic practice aimed at curtailing the movement and the confidence and the uh, physical comfort of women, uh, but apparently if it happens in Britain, if it happens in America, if it happens in New Zealand, if it happens in Australia, if it happens in Canada, it's absolutely fine, nothing to see here. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Anna Luffy, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you, and thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. That's very rare. Okay, <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about the Bad Law Project, what you do and, and how you achieve it? Yeah, um, well, it's a recent initiative. Um, it's barely a year old, so it's still finding its feet. It's playfully named, I would say, um, with the Good Law Project in mind. Obviously, there's a, um, a way of setting out our remit that is playfully opposed to um, projects already out there which are using very contentious political arguments as if they were mainstream legal arguments and the Bad Law Project sees that as a worrying trend. We, we, we want to take the politics out of law because that is obviously the whole uh, basis of our separation of powers, it's the essence of the democratic constitution that governs this country um, and in, in so drawing attention to ways in which law may be politicised or is becoming politicised uh, we hope to educate the public um, on what the law is, why the English legal system is as it is, and to awaken in people uh, a lively interest in the workings of the law and, and to be enthusiastic about the law. So um, rather than coming from a negative critical position of wanting to reform and change and blow away uh, institutional arrangements that have served this country relatively well, uh, we see the legal system as actually an asset. We recognise that it's one of Britain's continuingly um, successful exports and uh, it, it is admired across the world um, for its capacity to withstand political um, ideologies uh, and corruption of individuals. We, don't, we have the least corrupt judiciary, for example, um, in the world. At least that is 
a commonplace in, in the international legal arena uh, in forums such as arbitration, for example. So, so, so the English legal system is, is a, it's an asset and, and it, the, the way that it works is unusual. It's perhaps eccentric compared with other legal systems like the continental civil system. But we say that it, its assets are its strengths and that it's worth preserving uh, what we can of those arrangements that have worked traditionally very well. Um, the common law system based largely on precedent, the idea that cases that are already decided where they share similar facts or issues with other cases, those cases can be guides. Um, and of course, the ultimate authority uh, in our country is parliamentary legislation. Uh, but where parliamentary legislation doesn't do the job, common law comes into play. And that's that's a very unique system. It's not codified. It's not uh, attempting, as many of the European codifiers have tried to do over years, uh, centuries even. It's not trying to work out uh, the full gamut of human problems and all of the possible solutions in a in a volume or in a code, right. uh, you know, it, it works on the assumption that human beings are infinitely complex and, and, and the nature of their issues and problems are infinitely complex. And so on a case-by-case -case basis with the assistance of parliamentary legislation, you work out solutions. Yeah. And, and that's counterintuitive for many people because a lot of people think of law as very adversarial. Of course, in the criminal law, you're either guilty or innocent. Albeit that there are mitigating factors and there is a presumption of innocence, but in the civil arena where I work, uh, law is very often about creating spaces where people can actually workshop their problems, their issues, their arguments, and then those arguments on their strengths will be assessed in a judicial capacity mm -hmm. uh, and compromises will be struck where possible. People forget that about the law. It's very often that there isn't a winner or a loser to a case, but there are there are compromises. These are all really um, carefully balanced um, approaches to human decision making. And the asset that the English legal system has, uh, above all, I think, is the very idea that Parliament and the courts are spaces of debate. They are spaces where solutions are worked out and most importantly of all they are spaces where consensus public consensus can be carefully built so there isn't an assumption uh, that there's only one position to take mm. and that position certainly isn't in the english legal system to be decided by government because that would be anti-democratic and so i suppose after having said all of that long-winded introduction to the bad law project what 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 is at the heart of the project is a commitment to democracy um, and the institutional arrangements that have kept Britain's democracy um, as intact as it has been. And we say at the very centre of that democracy is the principle of debate, of free speech, of free expression, and that not all issues can be worked out overnight with simple solutions and ideological uh, positions. Mm -hmm. We say that's very unhealthy, and so we seek to try and uh, create an awareness ar around the strengths of the English legal system and how democracy and free speech can be promoted rather than repressed or clamped down on. I feel quite patriotic <laughs> after your description of English law there. Well, it's a particular problem, as you will be well aware, and not just in this country, that uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons, people often ascribe social media as a, to, you know, ascribe the main culprit, describe the main culprit even as, as social media. But we, we are all aware that whilst politics has always been part of life and whilst um, politics is always contentious, 
it's not always historically quite as polarised. You know, there are moments in history where it feels that there are there's a particular intensity to the polarisation. You start to see people forming binary tribes, us and them. And if 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 somebody isn't us, then they're not just different or uh, have a different approach or a different position or a different experience. They're very often characterised in enemy terms as deeply threatening and uh, a, a danger to society and something which has to be annihilated. And you get this very you know, albeit on social media, a very rhetorical use of terms such as, you know, fascist and Nazi to, to describe uh, one's political opponents. I think that is an indicator that we're living in highly polarised times where it's an us or them mentality. There are lots of loyalty tests. Um, who's with us? Who's against us? How do you know? How can you judge whether someone is a proper ally or a proper enemy? Uh, and, and all of that, especially online, which is in some ways totally removed from our legal jurisdiction. We, we have very unwieldy laws when it comes to policing and regulating and understanding what's happening online. Um, it, it, you know, the legal, the legal culture that we've inherited sort of gets lost in that. And so I suppose now is a very good time to sort of talk law, uh, talk about the law, what the law says, uh, what it allows us to do uh, which in the common law tradition is anything that isn't prohibited by statute, um, and to try and import some of that civil culture, that that reasonableness, the, the, the reasonableness that underpins um, the, the English law, um, into the online world and, yes. and to uh, inculcate some of those values in what is increasingly an online society. Some of the things you've talked about there sound a bit like war. We've had several guests coming on talking about the culture wars. Yes. Do you feel the, the legal system can provide an antidote to some of that? If the principles that I've just sort of very briefly touched on are respected, of course, we live in revolutionary times in many ways. And if you study revolutions, um, you'll know that one of the ways in which revolutionary change is engineered is by demonising everything that's come before. Uh, and so today, for example, very moderate, mild, what would have been called at some point Tories or even Whigs or social conservatives, they very often get demonised as you know far right or extreme. And I think it's because the very notion of conservatism is so anathema in a revolutionary era where everybody's talking about change, progress and the future. And so it becomes very difficult to have conversations about conservation and preserving things which are good. Um, and I think if the culture is encouraged to, uh, to see, as I said, the legal system as an asset, something that has worked, and of course it's not without its flaws and, and its problems, but, but it's something that can be used to um, tackle what we today call the culture wars, I think that the public would be on board for that. The, the public seemed to me quite exhausted by the culture wars. The constant politicisation of everything from that plant to your tie uh, to my hairstyle. I mean, it, it, it is exhausting and, and, and having to find out what is today the correct position that one must take and, and where do I go to find that correct position? If I live in a totalitarian society, I will go and see what the prime minister says or the leader or the leader of the party or the government. Uh, in a democratic society, it might be what my, my community and my, my group, my family think. Um, but our, our legal system has ways of balancing the fact that in any society, any healthy society, there is difference. Difference not just of 
skin color and culture and uh, religion and so on, the ones that we're used to uh, addressing in equality law, but there's also differences of, 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 of approach and uh, different value systems, different mm -hmm. norms. And so a legal system that works well will have tools uh, by which it can help um, let these different um, approaches, these different worldviews coexist peacefully. And I think the English legal system, because it inherited much of its common core principles from the contractual system, uh, you know, English contract law comes first and everything else follows. Well, what is a contract? It is an agreement between parties that maybe don't have the same interests at heart. And the, the basis of the English uh, contractual legal system is that you, 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 you find spaces where people can hammer out agreements, identify potential areas of disagreement, and then find out ways uh, to mitigate against those so that both parties come away with something. And you know, again, to talk about spaces, the courts and our parliament and our public square, including social media platforms, should, I think, take very seriously the idea that we're here to hammer out agreements. We're not here to identify enemies and shoot them on sight. And that would appear to me to be common sense based on the lessons of the 20th century, but you wouldn't know necessarily reading some, uh, some of the posts online. But do you feel there's some kind of uh, similarities between what's happening and, and some of the kind of communist uprisings that have happened in the past? It's interesting you should say that. I lived in Eastern Europe for 15 years in Budapest, in Hungary, um, and I studied history. My, my specialization was in 19th century history and state building, and I was looking particularly at the codification of law, hence my interest in the contrast between the civil system on the continent and the English common law system. Uh, so, so very much a 19th century historian, but of course being taught history in Budapest from uh, historians who were themselves former dissidents under uh, the, the Soviet system. I learned a lot about um, what we today flippantly sometimes call totalitarianism. And I read Hannah Arendt and Carl Schmitt and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I had to wrestle with whole chapters of history that I hadn't really confronted before having grown up in the UK. Um, and I, of course, see uh, worrying um, comparisons with the way that politics works now with how it worked under the Soviet system. And I'll say particularly what, what I find very worrying, which is that the communist system could not have been successful if it didn't hold great promise. And that promise was an inclusive worldview that, 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 that treated everybody as of value. And that um, uh, it would be there, it would be people's class identity that brought them together. Uh, and of course, that was the proletarian concept, which, which led to the formation of a so-called proletarian state that was always assumed to work in the interests of the proletariat. And what that meant was that if there was any kind of dissent or question about party policies uh, or, 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 or party decisions, um, the first thing that would happen as this Soviet system grew more and more rigid and, and, and bureaucratic and overbearing and totalitarian in nature was that it would identify the enemy as bourgeois. And so the use of the word bourgeois was applied to everyone that had a question. Whether or not they were artisans or factory workers or feminists or peasants, it didn't matter. They were all bourgeois and you used the word bourgeois to signal enemy. And I see the use of language today um, in political debates. I see the use of, of concepts like uh, 
racist, bigoted, far-right, uh, fascist Nazi, uh, without any historical literacy applied to everybody and anybody who is asking questions. It's almost as if, if you ask questions in modern Western democracies, uh, that is in itself an indicator of your disloyalty to the great cause of whatever anti-racism or you know inclusion, and therefore that makes you uh, a, an enemy who is bigoted. And, and, and we see that not only in the Soviet context, but let's just to show that I think of these things from two sides of the argument, we also see it in McCarthy uh, America. In the 1950s, uh, to question American government policy was to be a communist. And the word communist was rattled out and used as a silencing technique, a cancellation technique. People were blacklisted, chucked out of institutions, uh, not allowed to um, bring their own personal concerns or causes or community causes to the attention of the government because that was in and of itself questioning uh, authority and that was communist. And I say that, you know, both now situated in the 21st century, we should look back and say, you know, plague on both their houses. You know, communism was a social good in the Soviet system and anyone who dared question it was a bourgeois. And in McCarthyist America, communism was a social evil and anyone who dared question that was a, was a communist infiltrator. And we need to stop this. But if we can't, because it's human nature, or power is always naked and thirsty and intent on grabbing uh, social institutions and, and remaking society, then we have to be permanently vigilant and learn the lessons of history and call it out where we see it. And it really always does start with language, yeah. I think. And that's why when we see highly politicized concepts entering the legal system or being used by the legal profession or by judges or entering our courts, uh, we know that, therefore, that, that there's already foregone conclusions and people aren't able to assume that they come into the court and have a fair hearing or that they can you know, take their concerns to parliament and be judged fairly by the people that they elect to represent them because political considerations will be prioritised and therefore the idea of debating and workshopping important issues becomes an impossibility. On the subject of uh, political uh, things entering our legal system, as the group of a hundred or so lawyers who yes. refused to prosecute the climate activists. Yes. Do you think this is a sign of things to come, the kind of political beliefs are trumping the, the basics of our legal system? It was a very strange development, was it not? Mm. Our friend Jolien Morn, um, who runs the Good Law Project, was, I think, one of the individuals who spearheaded that campaign. And yes, it attracted a, a certain amount of attention. However, um, I would say that a lot of the attention was negative. Um, Yes, a hundred perhaps quite senior um, legal professionals signed up to it and at the end of the day I suppose that's their choice and that's their right. But is it? Because actually when you train, uh, as I did at the bar, um, you know, a core ethical principle um, is the cab rank rule. That you don't get to choose your clients on the basis of whether you like the way they vote or, or think that they are, have refined taste in music. <laughs> Um, or, you know, uh, whether you, you think they're a nice person or not. I mean, obviously in the criminal uh, area, that is a well-established principle because, you know, criminals have a right to legal representation and, and quite ugly criminals at that, you know, from child sexual offenders to, to, to violent um, uh, uh, robbers and burglars. But in the civil area too, it's a really important uh, principle that you don't 
uh, you don't make um, choices about your clients and judge them. You, you, you listen to what they have to say and what their cause is, and then you accept instructions from them to be their advocate. You are not your advocate, you are their advocate. So your politics and your principles are irrelevant. And I suppose if we abandon that principle within the legal profession, the cab rank rule, the idea that everybody has and is entitled to legal representation and to hear, to have their just cause heard to the best that it can be in a fair uh, and, um, and, and, and you know, procedurally fair um, uh, context, if we abandon that principle, then we would abandon that principle at every, in every area of life. So for example, an elected MP would only choose to serve some constituents, perhaps the ones that he likes or the ones that pay him the best or, or her. So it is about protecting um, areas of life which have jurisdiction and have authority and decision-making power over all of us. To try and keep some sense of impartiality and you do that by creating ethical principles like the cab rank rule. And whatever my sympathies are with with the cause that was identified in that case, which is activism against uh, climate change, um, I do think that it's irrelevant what I think, and it, it's irrelevant or should be irrelevant what Jolene Morn thinks about that, because, um, you know, as I say, it's, it's, it's all very well when it's something that you care about, but if you keep this idea that there's no impartiality and people can be bought off or, or, or lawyers can represent people that they like and disregard the human rights and the, uh, the causes of people that they don't like, then, then all politicians can follow suit and you very quickly find yourself in a nepotistic and, um, and uh, unf deeply unfair um, legal system. Yeah. Yeah. So we can see this principle in other areas. For example, it always used to be the case that you, know, you can say whatever you want, whether I agree with you or not, it doesn't matter. But now we're at the point where someone wants to say something and, and they can be cancelled and their right to free speech is taken away. Are we seeing political ideology basically remove some of the very cornerstones or try to remove some of the cornerstones of our, our society? Yeah, what I see is the, um, the, the sort of choppy seas of the culture wars, if we want to go back to that term. I see people sailing very choppy waters and when you're on a, an unstable surface like a like a moving boat and the, and there are storms whipping up around you you feel very insecure as an individual and you feel very insecure as a group of individuals if there's a if there's a whole um, uh, team of people on this boat uh, then they're going to feel very insecure and then they see sharks circling and so on and uh, they start to to grip tightly to, to this boat because it becomes their only salvation. And I feel that the culture wars have produced a very choppy environment where people are so uncertain about what things mean that they hold certain things very dear and are scared to depart from them. This creates um, huge amounts of opportunity for power hungry thugs uh, to gain ascendancy because they can always promise certainty. They can promise you that on this issue, there is only one received opinion. Stick to that and you'll be absolutely fine. But if you depart from it or you raise your eyebrows or you roll your eyes or you ask questions or you're not convinced in some way, uh, then that um, is potentially something that could be sanctioned or punished. 
And in that kind of climate, people will then stick to very solid received opinions and they will look to authorities to tell them what those opinions should be. We live in, you know, a volatile climate that's generated by social media. So news moves very fast, much faster than it did when I was a child. You know, you had maybe one or two major news stories a week, maybe a month sometimes. But here we've got 10, today we've got 10 or 12 moving, fast moving stories. And they're all highly important and very charged and very emotional. And so people want to know exactly what they're supposed to, to think about those issues. And so they look to authority and they say, well, as long as I stick to what you know, the powers that be say is the position, I will be all right. And unfortunately, that's that's the antithesis of what I was saying earlier about how contractual agreements are worked out. How is the social contract worked out? You know, we have lots of people in this country who have quite different ideas about things, quite different understandings of what is a priority for public policy, what should be a priority for the budget, what should be a priority for education. And we need to have those spaces, as I said, where we can hammer out priorities and build some consensus. That's going to mean compromise usually on lots of different sides. Um, but in a, in a climate such as the one I've just described, where everyone's feeling very insecure and they don't know what the consequences will be if they let go of that, you know, of that rudder on these choppy waters, um, you'll find that people are increasingly unwilling, not just to say what they think. We hear a lot about that in freedom of expression circles that, oh, people don't, they don't want to say what they really think. I think it's more insidious. I think it's becoming easier for people not to even try and think about what they think <laughs> because it's too, it's too much work and there's no pay, payoff, you know, because if you do come to some conclusion on your own, you don't know if you can share it. And the, Emmanuel, and the philosopher Immanuel Kant was quite clear that freedom of expression is no good if it's not shareable. You can't have freedom of expression on your own in a cell in your head. You have to have public squares where your ideas can be imparted to others uh, and exchanged. And that's how a civilized and a mature society uh, can, can, can establish the basis for a social consensus and a social contract. So, so I think, yes, the, the, the insecurity of individuals is creating um, uh, an increasing dependence on authority, which is over time eroding their capacity to even try and understand what they think themselves as sovereign individuals. Why we live in such insecure times? Well, as I said, you know, there's, there's a revolutionary um, zeitgeist. You know, we've had a technological revolution. We've certainly got very um, unstable economic climates. Uh, you know, we've got um, different world powers competing for resources where previously we had fewer world powers. Um, and uh, you've got the mass movement of people across the world. And these things all can create climates of instability. But I would say that makes the job of the bad law project more necessary uh, and more important because what it has to be responsibly in such times is not committed to a, an ideological partisan view on every issue, but rather committed to creating spaces where people can um, bring to the table what they think, why they think it, what they think are problems and how we can move forward um, with everybody having a fair hearing. I was hoping we could dive into some of the big projects the Bad Law Project is working on. Um, yes, yeah, so we've got two big projects at the moment in terms of legal projects. So we do, you know, um, 
media content and we produce the Bad Law Show um, and we have, um, you know, we conduct polling and we try to ascertain what are the, the, the issues that people care about um, and uh, you know, different views on different issues. So there's a sort of campaigning uh, public relations element, media element to what we do. But in terms of legal cases, we have two uh, main projects that we're supporting. Um, and the first is the case of uh, Andrew Bridgen, the MP, uh, who um, has been uh, trying since the events of 2020 with the lockdowns um, and the subsequent um, problems that lockdowns are associated with in the public mind, and also uh, the rather unprecedented uh, um, medical regimes that emerged. Uh, in the context of the pandemic, uh, some of which were promoted as mandatory regimes. That is to say, in the care home sector, for example, you, you had by law to take um, a vaccine against coronavirus if you were to continue working in the sector. But there was a lot of pressure on people to take vaccines and uh, a lot of um, very casual information about how safe and effective they were and, um, and how everybody should have one irrespective of their age and their health and their, and their, and, and their personal situation. And of course, um, because it was such a concerted message, whether it was right or wrong as a message is a matter for the individual, but it, it meant that we again found ourselves in, in, in one of these situations where there is a, an issue, people have questions, there are some uh, concerns and some casualties of this apparently you know, utopian and fantastic government policy that no one should ever question because it was in the, in the common good. Um, and though one of the groups of people that has emerged from um, the, the COVID experience in this country and in other countries are people who have suffered adverse reactions mm. and don't understand why or don't understand what recourse they have, what sort of compensation they might have and how it might be prevented. And if there are perhaps groups of people that on, in hindsight, without all of the drama around COVID and the pandemic, there might be groups of people who would be perhaps better advised to avoid um, uh, medical treatments about which they, they haven't properly done their research or had, or had full um, information because informed consent is a, is a bedrock of, of medical ethics. And that, that bedrock of medical ethics was swept aside with COVID, as were many human rights, such as the right to assemble and the right to um, you know, to, 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 well, to do anything really when we were under full lockdown. And people are still reeling from that experience. And one of the individuals in Parliament who, who whatever you think about the lockdowns, the pandemic and the vaccines, one of the MPs who tried to raise at least some concerns that had been brought to him by not just members of his constituency, but other members of the public, including people who are professionally qualified, um, in the relevant areas um, he, is Andrew Bridgen. He, he, he was being approached by people who said, you know, we've got to have, we've got to have the debate in Parliament about all of it, but in particular about these people who, who are experiencing and reporting serious harms and some, sadly, even deaths. Now, what happened was that he was ridiculed and it is no surprise that he was ridiculed by, you know, the former Secretary of State for Health, Matt Hancock, but it was the way he was ridiculed. You know, uh, people can ridicule one another and all's fair in love and war and politics, particularly today, is, is full of 
you know, quite vitriolic um, accusations about how something is good or bad public policy. But to call somebody an anti-Semite mm -hmm. on the basis of absolutely no evidence whatever has, in our view, one function and one function alone, and it has nothing to do with Andrew Bridgen's views on um, Jews and the Holocaust, um, because if you look at his track record, there's no evidence whatever of anti-Semitism or Holocaust denial, in rather the contrary, I would say, if you look at his track record as a politician. So that that attempt to 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 put Andrew Bridgen in this um, probably the most, most heinous category that we can conceptualize, having you know, still strong historical memories of what happened in the 20th century. To call someone an anti-Semite, to, to shut down a member of parliament who's trying to raise debates. We have to ask ourselves as a society, um, do we think politics is about debates? Yes. Do we debate the size of the NHS? Yes. Do we debate immigration? Yes. Uh, do we debate whether MPs should have second salaries? Yes. Okay, good. We get that. Politics is about debates. People have different views. Are there things we can't debate? Are there the things that we all sort of assume are off, off the limits of debate in terms of um, important burning political questions that affect all of us every day in our lives? I would say that the, um, the pandemic and the government response to the pandemic is an example of something that we all were impacted by lots of people suffered from, much of it is arguably disproportionate and completely um, undermines basic principles of our you know, common law and human rights. And yet to, to be publicly associated with questioning any of that government response puts you in some wacky kooky category of people who shall not be listened to, people who shall not be acknowledged. Almost people, I think Matt Hancock even used the phrase, you know, have no place in our society. You know, the, 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 Andrew Bridgen has no place in our society. Well, he was elected. Of course he has a place. And yes, there are disciplinary regimes in politics. And I accept that not every politician says exactly what they think all the time. But he was representing concerns that had been brought to him by people who elected him. And I think that um, the message of our case against Matt Hancock um, on defamation grounds is that you don't use um, specious and highly inflammatory and ultimately socially isolating concepts like racist, anti-Semite, um, bigot, paedophile, whenever somebody is trying to generate a debate. Instead, the mature response is, Let's have the debate. And everyone will have fair hearing to justify what they think is the right response in such a situation. Because who knows, we might have another um, similar uh, emergency situation. And wouldn't it be good to have the benefit of a properly workshopped public consultation, public debate in Parliament, the mother of all parliaments, um, you know, the, the centre of the oldest democracy in the world, if you, if you believe the hype? <laughs> wouldn't it be? a common sense uh, proposal to let that debate be had so that everyone in the country could at least feel that their position was represented. Um, and we're not talking about unreasonable positions. We're talking about people who suffered you know, terrible, terrible losses, not just medical uh, um, adverse reactions to vaccines, but also people who lost their businesses, people who suffer from mental health issues now, school, children who were denied schooling, who have still not returned to school. 
um, children who've been groomed online or developed addictions online because they were subjected to online education for months on end without proper supervision. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I just, um, I think it's common sense that, that, that we support Andrew Bridgen's right to open the debates that he wants to open. And I, I would just say that I think it's a very unusual case because defamation is often associated with shutting down speech. Um, you know, the idea that you won't say that because it, it hurts me, it hurts my reputation. It's not quite the, the argument that Andrew Bridgen is bringing. He's bringing an argument that says, you know, you don't get to slander me with the ugliest smear you can get your hands on in order to stop an important public debate from occurring. And that is a free speech issue. It's an issue of democracy. It's a constitutional matter. And, and that is one of our um, projects. And I'll obviously watch this space. The other project that we are um, launching is um, on behalf of parents uh, who feel that, um, well, they don't feel, they unfortunately have had a direct experience of um, their children being subjected to ideas at school and being encouraged um, in, in those ideas to, to behave in ways which are potentially very detrimental to their well-being their mental well-being and their psychological well-being. And this is the idea that uh, your body is something that you can escape from and you can choose um, a fantasy identity that is um, who you really are. But in order to get there, you have to start making changes uh, to your old self, whether it starts with a name or a pronoun, but it then potentially can progress to medical interventions and as we've seen uh, in some of the more recent cases that have hit the headlines like Kira Bell's case uh, in, in some cases it can lead to lifelong damaging um, um, medical treatments the use of puberty blockers to pause puberty cross-sex hormones and even surgery which renders people not only potentially infertile but also with 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 all sorts of, of, of conditions that um, that they struggle with. But there's also a mental dimension to that as well, which is, you know, if, if you as a child want to get maybe a tattoo of a swastika on your forehead at the age of 11, and your parent says no, I mean, the fact of the matter is you can wait until you're 16 or 18 to go ahead and do it. But if you have a, a, an educational environment which is saying, you know, you know, maybe your parents don't really have your interests at heart because, you know, you want to tattoo that swastika on your head. And why shouldn't you? Because swastikas on foreheads are great. They are, you know, they're, they're unusual, they're special, they're different. Uh, they they make you special and they, they're a marker of how special you are. I, I mean, I think that example does clearly illustrate why we're seeing um, um, parents becoming quite irate at the way schools are encouraging what is potentially self-harm in, in young vulnerable children and taking um, the child aside and sort of inculcating in them a sense that their parents perhaps aren't their best allies mm -hmm. and that can cause all sorts of social breakdowns within the family. What we say is that this idea about gender, partic particularly gender, but it could extend to other, other political ideologies in schools as well, but this idea that you have a fantasy identity um, that you can embrace at the expense of your, of your body, the body you were born with, which often is accompanied by self-loathing and self-harming and hatred of the body, 
uh, we say that that ideology has been on the rise for, well, we don't know how long, but for years. And that, you know, it is clearly not lawful, given how contested this idea is and how many people do not accept it. Uh, sometimes they don't accept it because of their faith or their religion, and sometimes they have secular reasons for not accepting it. They just don't think it's true or they think it's harmful. Um, that idea has been um, you know, fed into schools through third sector organisations who provide the materials, pushing the idea of gender ideology as the, the best thing since sliced bread. And we have laws that prohibit political indoctrination in schools. We have the Education Act 1996, which explicitly states that, that, that schools cannot uh, indoctrinate pupils in political um, ideologies, by which I suppose one would say anything that is so contentious as to have divided the country into two is clearly a political ideology and it should not be being pushed in schools. So, so there's a breach of the law there, which the Department of Education should have been aware of and is aware of, we say, and it's just simply failed to act, prevent these third sector groups coming in with political agendas um, and political aims and aiming to turn teachers and students into their sort of flying monkeys, their activist flying monkeys um, in the classroom. That is a breach of the Education Act, but it's also a breach of child safeguarding. You know, we have, um, I mean, the Department of Education has pages of guidance on, on child safeguarding and, and where there is a clear risk to a child, um, the appropriate adults involved, from family members to teachers uh, to school um, heads uh, to education authorities and ultimately the Department of Education have a duty of care. We say there's been negligence on both fronts, safeguarding and political indoctrination. And the, the harms that we're seeing to children and to their families and to the relationships within those families. Those harms are tragic because I've heard the stories and they are tragic uh, and they were they were avoidable and they and these harms were foreseeable. Can and, you give us an example? Yeah, obviously don't have to name names so we can yes. understand the, the type of harm that was. Well you know um, a lot of a lot of the children that get caught up in this um, idea that you are not your body, which by the way is a dissociative condition in any sort of mainstream medical, um, that you can Google dissociative disorders and it's, you know, it's very well documented that this is a response to trauma, this is a response to stress, this is a way in which human beings often cope with very difficult information about their reality and about the world that they live in. Uh, and we do live in a very anxiety producing era and children are given a lot of information which is difficult to process and overwhelming and I think what we're seeing is a lot of these young people who get swept up into a dissociative uh, paradigm where they want to escape if you will out of their bodies into an alternative identity are disproportionately children that would be diag diagnosed with some other underlying comorbidity such as Asperger's syndrome or some sort of autistic spectrum disorder Maybe they have a history of being bullied and not being popular, or uh, maybe they have issues that they are struggling with in themselves um, to do with self-harm or weight. Or um, I don't want to to say that all of the children that get swept up in this are are automatically suffering from other medical comorbidities. What I say is that we are seeing um, a, a disproportionate number of young people who are. We're also seeing 
undeniable evidence that this 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 um, this idea is contagious. It spreads. You know, we've got more and more and more children wanting to identify out of their natal sex. Sometimes it's the opposite sex that they identify as, but increasingly we're seeing it take on almost science fiction dimensions where people are identifying as just otherworldly beings. You know, they want to be aliens, they want to be furry animals, they want to be um, anime characters, they want to be superheroes, they want to do cosplay. It's all, it's all well and good in the context of a comic book or, you know, um, you know, a sort of science fiction fantasy film, but the school is becoming a, a breeding ground where children are taught that actually there isn't really a difference between what you fantasize about and what your reality is. Now, if you're seeking to escape from something that you're struggling with, which let's face it, most adolescents by definition are struggling with the changes that their bodies are going through. They're struggling with their peer relationships. They're having a starting to become aware of their own sexual feelings and having strong attachments. They're also maybe thinking about who they want to be in the future and, and where they're going in life. And maybe there's tensions with their parents and all of this stuff that every adolescent, you know, we, we know this um, is, is being kind of solved as a messy, complex set of problems that every parent knows about and every parent struggles with. It's being solved at the level of the state by letting children kind of escape out of all of their social problems and giving that um, protected characteristic in law which, if you go to the letter of the Equality Act, gender reassignment is protected. You can't discriminate. But gender reassignment is only available in law when you've reached the age of 18, because it involves certain procedures. So gender reassignment has no place in schools because it doesn't apply to under 18-year-olds. And, and yes, you can make arguments that, it, that the, the transition out of one's natal sex or gender begins at various points in your life and it's a journey and schools have to be supportive of that journey but I think in fairness gender reassignment in law starts at age 18 or over and the concept of transgenderism or queer or LGBTQ or any of these frameworks that are used to promote this ideology of escapism from your body they're not protected characteristics in the Equality Act and therefore they do not um, they shouldn't be included with, with, with well-documented protected characteristics in the Equality Act like sex, race, religion, you know, where, where there are clear boundaries, what that refers to, and, and discrimination and, uh, is unlawful and that's as it should be. And inclusion is to be promoted, particularly in a multicultural school like London. Of course you want policies which, which facilitate well-being and good relationships between Muslim kids, um, non-religious non kids, Christian kids, whatever, black kids, white kids, whatever. Um, but what we're seeing is the importing of, of a, of a quasi-protected characteristic, which is LGBTQIA+, whatever. And, uh, and, and what that boils down to when you look at the actual materials and the way students are getting caught up in the excitement of it has nothing to do with civil rights or human rights. It has nothing to do with sexual orientation uh, it, it has to do with this idea of a fantasy from, from through which you can escape a material reality. And we say that that is causing mental and physical harms to families and to children uh, on the watch of the Department of Education. And that's why we have our case, which is bringing parents as litigants uh, to hold the Department of Education to account for not being 
uh, active, proactive in tackling this. Um, and uh, our campaign is called Asleep at the Wheel. And you can um, go to the uh, uh, website where we have a crowdfunder for that case uh, at democracy3.org. And you'll find details of both that case and the defamation case against Matt Hancock uh, there with useful links as well, such as the policy exchange report, which is entitled Asleep at the Wheel, which chronicles some of the harms that we've, we've seen. And you asked me for concrete examples of, of children. I mean, we, we see examples of children, for example, you know, moving swiftly from puberty blockers to cross-sex hormones. I mean, this gets said a lot in, in the, the parlance around this subject, but you know, let's be very, very clear that it's much more than just changing your body shape or trying to create the appearance of something other than your natal sex. There are psychological effects of these things. When you start to take um, medications of any kind, there has to be caution, there has to be monitoring, there has to be case-by-case um, -case analysis of whether that is right for that person. None of this is happening with these young people. So you have people taking medications that they get off, off the internet. There are these, you know, websites where you can, you can order these kinds of um, hormonal treatments. Uh, chest binding, for example, I, I've, I, I've, I've heard stories of, of young women who've decided that their breasts are the enemy and they're going to escape their reality of puberty by, by binding, getting the, the binders off, off, off the internet and binding these breasts. Um, so that they're stunted uh, in their growth. And of course, there's pain involved and there are implications for health down the road. It's, it's heartbreaking when you look at the, the, West, the Western world's indignation at something like female genital mutilation or the Western world's indignation at the Ugandan practice of child sacrifice where body parts are removed from a living child in order to ward off evil spirits. And we say, well, 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 you know, uh, how could this be civilized? How can any society tolerate this sort of stuff? And I would say, physician, heal thyself. You know, in the heart of Western so-called civilized societies, we are encouraging practices uh, that are harmful to young people. Um, we are targeting their genital areas and we are encouraging breast binding when whilst condemning the uh, ancient Chinese practice of foot binding, which it's recognized as a misogynistic practice aimed at curtailing the movement and the, the confidence and the uh, physical comfort of women. Uh, but apparently if it happens in Britain, if it happens in America, if it happens in New Zealand, if it happens in Australia, if it happens in Canada, it's absolutely fine, nothing to see here. Well, if that's not racist, I don't know what is. How do we come to these incredible double standards? Like, oh, that's really wrong, but when we do it here with the breast planning, for example, that's that's freedom. Well, this is the big um, burden that democratic societies have, and unfortunately, it's one that we don't want, but we've got it, which is, if you are a democracy, um, then you start to see yourself as different from societies where perhaps democratic freedoms are not taken for granted. So you will, um, you will assume that your politicians are not corrupt, and then you will look across the pond to whichever other country you're looking at, Zimbabwe or Uganda or the, uh, Egypt or you name it, and you say, well, 
you know, those countries, I mean, what do you expect? Politicians are corrupt. And, 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 and of course, you have some grounds for saying that if you live in a society where there is less corruption. And I do believe, and God help me, I, I may be wrong, but I do believe that British politicians, as I said about the judiciary, are probably less corrupt on balance than many other countries, politicians in many other countries. Let, let's just hypothetically assume that. Um, the problem is that if that's true and everybody believes it to be true, there becomes an immediate complacency, which is, well, those countries do that because their politicians are corrupt, but that could never happen here. Mm. And Britain is one of the worst offenders of this because you have, I know many, many middle-class liberals who will bore me to tears at, mid, at middle-class dinner parties over the, the Merlot, whatever, after six or seven bottles, start, talking about the evils of racism. But when you put to the middle-class liberal the idea that there is potentially corruption within the political class, or that there's censorship of the media, or that um, the police are exercising disproportionate powers uh, which have implications for freedom of expression, inevitably it would be like, oh no, not here. But if I'd said Romania, if I'd said Bulgaria, if I'd said, you know, um, Mozambique, they would be like, well, yes, without knowing a thing about those countries, because the assumption is everywhere else is, is basically, you know, a cesspit of, of, of failing standards. And we are the beacon, the democratic beacon. What I say to people is if we are the democratic beacon, and I think it's problematic to say that, but let's suppose we are, then we have a duty to examine with absolute scrutiny, 100% all of the time, our institutions for signs of rot. Because the danger is if you think you live in a democratic society, you won't see the signs because you're too complacent. And I am afraid, I think that is where Britain is now. We have lost the ability to think that we could be anything other than what we think we are. And um, it will take, I think, quite dramatic abuses of power, such as the lockdowns, such as the um, medical abuses of very young and vulnerable children, these sorts of scandals, that lots of people suffering from adverse reactions to mandated or strongly encouraged safe and effective treatment, it's going to take you know, horrible tragedies in order for people to wake up. And that, the example I always give is the thalidomide scandal, you know, where it took, it, it took years and years and years of, pre of press um, agencies battering down the doors of parliament to get that debate heard and clamoring for a public debate on the use of this drug, uh, which I believe was known to be toxic when it was put on the marketplace. Um, so that it could then be debated and, and withdrawn and compensation paid to the victims. Of course, the compensation is, is laughable compared with what was inflicted on those innocent people who didn't know that they were taking a toxic drug. Um, but, you know, it took that horror for, 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 for there to be a public recognition that horrors happen. And I would like to think we live in a society where we could, and this is to go back to the Department of Education case, we have the maturity and wisdom as a society to see where horror could happen, where horrors might come along, and what could prevent horrors from happening, the notion in tort law of foreseeable harm. 
And we've got to exercise judgment and say, it's not good enough to wait until something horrific happens. We have to, we have to identify potential harms before they happen to protect vulnerable people in our society from abuses of power. How do we do that? The answer is talk about it. Get those spaces, those common spaces, those public spaces, those political spaces, full of people who have different views on the problem and let them talk. And may the best man win. Uh, lovely, thank you for joining us. On thank British you Talk. so much for having me. In. <laughs> Thank you.